Well, as many of you probably know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of our nation's Supreme Court justices, died just last Friday. This is a big deal right now because we are less than two months away from a presidential election, even closer. President Trump has already announced that he will seek to appoint her replacement sometime next week. And the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, has said that they expect to vote to install that justice before the election. This simply means that in the next couple of weeks, we'll be almost certainly crazier than we had anticipated that it could be. But it's making many people in our nation ask questions about judges, about justice. What qualifies a judge? What is the role of a judge, or in this case, a high court judge, like a Supreme Court justice? I mean, this is really providential in its timing, because a few weeks ago, I had already planned that this week we'd be covering judges as we consider civil government. It's a critical component of the way that we relate to the state is to understand how God gave judges and what it is that those judges are designed to do. Today we're going to read through Exodus chapter 18, verse 17 through 23. If you have your Bibles, you can go and turn right there. I'm just going to let you have that open. We'll show some other verses as we get to those. But I'm going to read through this passage. And then we're going to cover judges, God's standard for justice, and separation of church and state. I think all of that can come out of a text like this and hopefully be helpful for us as we're trying to understand right relationship between state and the people. So I'm just going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to ask for God's wisdom and guidance as we do this. Um, And then we're going to read through the passage and ask questions of it as we have been recently. Let's do that. Lord, we come to you in prayer yet again this morning. We ask for wisdom and for guidance. Father, please help us to submit to your word. Help us to have any wrong thinking that's come into our minds through history classes and being American or being Westerner or uh, just all, all the things that tend to kind of attach themselves to us like barnacles. Father, I pray that you would help those things to fall away as we open your word, that we would see it as it was designed to be to seen and that we would know how to apply it rightly. Father, keep us from error. Protect me right now, Father, I ask, as I preach on these things. Help preserve your truth even in this teaching, Father. Help me to be true, clear, and helpful. And Father, as we often pray, please help our understanding of even judges. Help us to love you and worship you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to look at the origin of Israel's leadership structure before the time of the kings. In past sermons in this series, I explained that the time of the kings in Israelite history operated with the form of government that we might call a constitutional monarchy. It was a monarchy in that it had kings. It was constitutional in that the kings had to abide by a written law, namely the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. But prior to the institution of kings, there was another form of government that was at work with the people of God. So in Exodus 18, we're going to see some of this begin to play out. This passage was written to Israel after God had just delivered them out of slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses. The people had come to Mount Sinai 
where God is preparing to give them his law. They've not yet even received the Ten Commandments at this point, but they're being prepped for it. While they're there at the foot of the mountain, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to meet him there. After spending some time amongst the people, he observes how Moses deals with the many problems that such a large group of people face on a regular basis. He notices that Moses spends much of his time settling disputes between people. And Jethro sees this as a problem. So, as a good father-in-law should, he steps in to offer some helpful, albeit unsolicited, advice. I'll start reading in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, "'What what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone.' Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses receives this advice from Jethro. And it becomes the established norm for Israel for the next four centuries until the time of the kings. Now, the word being used for judge in this passage, and the word that will be used of these particular uh, judges, is a kind of broad-range term in Hebrew. It can be used to, uh, to mean a king, a ruler. It can be an advisor to military council. It can be a military commander, like a general. Or it can be a judge, one who sits in the authority of a court, settling disputes in legal matters. And that's the way that I think that it's intended to be used here. The context determines how we see it. The role of judge in this passage is given to those men among the people who meet these qualifications. And did you catch them? Because I'll read them again. They must fear God, prove themselves trustworthy, and they must hate bribes. Feels kind of a low bar, doesn't it? And this responsibility is given to able and qualified men, is the terms that used, able and qualified, with no reference to formal training, social status, or even tribal ancestry, which was a big deal for the Hebrews. Later, what starts out as some good advice from Jethro becomes a formal statute for the nation of Israel. So in other words, they did begin to operate with this, but it doesn't just stay uh, oral law. It actually becomes codified. That's just written out in the law of Deuteronomy. When we get to that point of Israel's history, Moses is about to die. He's going to send Joshua and the people into the promised land. And so he gathers the people together one last time before they go into the land, crossing over the Jordan River, and he tells them what the law of God is. He summarizes it for them. And in this summary... He gives them explicit direction of how judges should be appointed. You're welcome to turn to Deuteronomy 16 if you'd like. I'll put it up on the screen. 
I'm going to show you 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So this is the established law for appointing judges. And it, it, it follows on that same course as Exodus 18, doesn't it? That there will be local judges and there's going to be a higher courts and at different levels. And remember how Jethro said that the most difficult legal cases could still be brought to Moses. Well, the written law would go on to formalize that very idea as well. The next chapter in Deuteronomy 17, it says this, If any case arises... Requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Real quick parenthetical here. That phrase is always referring to Jerusalem. They didn't know what it was going to be yet because they hadn't arrived there. God would put a, a temple there. He'd put the king there. That would be the capital of Israel. And so that's the place they're pointing to. They'll arise and go to that place. And continuing on. And you shall come to the, the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So after the days of Moses, the responsibility to deal with the most difficult cases was delegated to a judge who was in office in those days, as it says. And this judge would have at his disposal a group of Levitical priests who served as legal advisors, which would be a suitable role for them, as they were expected to be experts in the law. Later, the Bible will offer additional guidance regarding civil justice. For example, consider Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Legal matters that take many months or even years to resolve are a sign of unjust judges. And the lethargic legal process produces more evil rather than restraining it as it ought. So according to God's word, a judge must fear God, prove himself trustworthy, hate bribes. He shall not pervert justice. He shall show no partiality. He must concern himself only with righteous judgment speedily according to God's perfect standard. And he may even take counsel from wise and godly men who know God's word inside and out. These were the requirements for a judge in the Old Testament. Now, during this period of history, before the days of the kings, before that constitutional monarchy, the form of government under which Israel operated was a theocracy. A theocracy. The term theocracy is a combination of the words theos, which means God, and kratos, which means rule. So the word properly means rule of God. 
God's rule. A theocracy, then, is a system of government in which God is openly recognized as the supreme ruling authority. That's the simplest and most basic definition of a theocracy. I'll say it again. It's a system of government in which God is openly recognized as the supreme ruling authority. But many people today, you should know, use the term theocracy to refer to a system of government that's run by the priests of a state religion. And that's different. They confuse theocracy with ecclesiocracy. So they, they confuse uh, the rule of God with rule by a church. Okay? That's when the officers of the church sphere of authority are also the officers of the civil sphere of government. It's when civil government is run by the church. And there have certainly been periods of time, especially in like Roman Catholic history, for example, in which this was the case. The highest leaders in the church were the highest leaders in the civil government. And so people have seen theocracy in the Old Testament, and they've made assumptions that that must be an approved church-run government. But you'll notice that is not an accurate description of Israelite government at any point in Israelite history. Even Moses himself, who did have some kind of ruling authority over the people, was not properly a priest. He was not in the line of Aaron. And after him, all of the rulers of Israel, all of them, both regional or national, were from the non-priestly tribes, up to and including Samuel and his sons, who were not priests either because they were from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, in past weeks, uh, we were in the book of Hebrews up to the middle of the summer. I showed you from that, those, those texts that were showing that Jesus himself was the great high priest. It even says about Jesus that he wouldn't have been qualified to be a priest only by earthly standards because he was not from the line of Levi and from the subline of Aaron. That was a really critical component. The only named ruler judge in the Old Testament who was also a Levitical priest was Eli, Samuel's successor. 1 Samuel 4, which we're going to actually get into next week, says that he judged Israel for 40 years. It's the only one we know of that's given by name that had some kind of ruling authority and was also a Levite. So the nation of Israel, which was unquestionably influenced by religion, was never run by priests. It was theocratic in that it openly acknowledged that God himself was the supreme ruling authority but it did not operate with the church running the state. Okay, here's why this is so important. Because this wrong understanding about Israel's form of government in those days has persuaded many, even many Christians today, to utterly disregard the Old Testament when looking for direction for civil governments today. Now, it is true that Israel was obligated to acknowledge God as their highest authority back then. But can any Christian honestly say that there is any nation today that God does not obligate to submit to him as the highest authority? Is this not also true about the gospel itself? Is there any person on earth who can avoid the judgment of God by his own works apart from submission to Jesus? 
We preach to the whole of creation. And what do we preach? Repent! I think Paul says this so well in Acts chapter 17. He's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles who believed in a bunch of differing religions, certainly distinct from even Judaism at the time. Acts 17, he says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So first, who is that one who is appointed to judge the world in righteousness? The one he raised from the dead. Jesus. Jesus is the supreme judge over all the earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And all people everywhere have been commanded to repent. That's judges, governors, presidents, emperors, kings have been commanded to acknowledge God, repent of sins, and turn in faith to Jesus. Guys, this is why we send missionaries to the four corners of the earth. If we were to find an island that somehow evaded Google Earth, and we were to find people living on that, immediately Christians would be finding a way to get the gospel there. Why? Because we love the lost like our God loves us. And because he will hold all people accountable to how they relate to the law that he has put in their hearts and the fact that God exists, that he has written in the stars. Remember, the Bible tells us that it is God alone who determines what is just. We call all people to repent because according to his perfect command, he has told us that we are sinners before him and that we deserve just judgment. We can proclaim this to everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from acknowledging that, repenting of sin and turning in faith to Jesus, you will be separated from God for forever in hell, for all eternity. The Bible is so clear about this. Remember, it is our job not to create or to try to determine what is just and right, but it is our job to align to what God has determined. No judges in all of human history have ever been granted the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. That authority belongs to God alone. Nobody has that but Him. All laws will be judged according to how well they align to what He has commanded. Here's a New Testament passage for you. This isn't even Old Testament. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. For a judge to claim this authority for himself would not only be foolish, but would be blasphemy. Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. This is the starting point for justice. If a person were to deny this, they would have no foundation for justice whatsoever. They would find their legal footing floating in midair. Deuteronomy 1, 16 through 17. And I charge your judges at that time. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. All right and just judgment belongs to God. 
is owing to him. If there is any hope for somebody making a right judgment, it would only be because of God's good revelation of what is true and just to that person. Proverbs 28.5. It's difficult to overcome a verse like this. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. All right, Christians, if you've ever these verses, learning them in Awana clubs growing up or, or just kind of done any uh, scripture memorization. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Continuing on, what is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. We cannot expect a godless person to even begin to understand justice. Now, some might ask, what about natural law? Isn't there a way for non-believers to know anything about justice? Yes, yes, of course, there is a way under the common grace of God. All of us have been given a conscience. Romans 2.15 tells us that God has given us a conscience to bear witness to what is right and wrong. That we know in our hearts what is right and we know what is wrong. All of us have been given that conscience. And of course, yes, there's no question about that. By the grace of God, a person can... And oftentimes, they do stumble into making right judgments. You can find an atheist nation that punishes theft. An atheist nation that punishes murder, that punishes adultery. Yes, you can find that, certainly, because God has written it on the heart of every one of us. But even those incidental cases of right judgment will not last for long. When a person rejects an ultimate and objective lawgiver, they lose the foundation for justice. We go downtown, we talk to people on the street at Planned Parenthood. So there a couple weeks ago and, and got into a conversation that I know is very common in that circle. Uh, there's a nurse walking by and she waited until she was kind of passing by a little bit and then she turned back. We were standing there holding signs and talking to people as they were coming and going. And she said, because our, our science said uh, um, abortion is murder. And she says, not murder, it's legal. I said, what's the relevance of that? How about slavery? That was legal too. And she stopped and turned around again. She said, that's different. Why? What makes it different? Whole societies of people thought that the slave trade was good and right. Who are you to judge them wrong? By what standard can a person make a judgment like that against an entire society full of people? When a person rejects God as the foundation for justice, they lose any reasonable basis for establishing right and wrong. It becomes, because I don't like it. Well, I don't like you, but what's the relevance of that? Our preferences cannot determine what is right and wrong. And the interesting thing is, even a person in that situation, she knew slavery was wrong, even though societies full of people thought that it was good. How can she make that appeal? Because she's an image bearer of God, and in her heart she knows what's right. Judges in the Old Testament were commanded to start there. The fear of the Lord They were to judge according to his unchangeable standard rather than their own preferences. 
There is no other standard that will suffice for true justice but God alone. Here's the point. The requirements for right judgment in the Old Testament are the same requirements for right judgment today. Let me make sure I'm I'm being very clear of what I'm saying here. President Trump should seek to appoint as the next Supreme Court justice of our land a God-fearer who has proven to be trustworthy and hates a bribe. And nothing short of that will do. Now, I know a statement like that brings up some questions about separation of church and state. Rich, are you saying that we should demand that a civil leader acknowledge and submit to God? For the record, absolutely yes. With absolutely no hesitation. Yes, every civil leader ought to repent before King Jesus and acknowledge Him as our Lord and Savior and begin aligning all of our laws to what would please God rather than man. Yes, absolutely. We have a very skewed view of separation of church and state today. Very skewed view. Do you remember the three spheres of government that I introduced this sermon series with six, six weeks ago, I think now? It looked like this. It showed that in the Bible, we can find three institutions ordained by God in which governance takes place. The state, the church, and the family. And our entire series has been exploring what the Bible says the relationship is between each of those spheres. And I've made it incredibly clear over and over from multiple passages of the Old Testament and the New that none of these spheres has the authority to step outside of their jurisdiction. If the state leaders try to enforce laws that are not given them by God to enforce, they are out of their jurisdiction. We do not need to comply. And the same would be true of a rogue church or some random dad in a neighborhood who's trying to enforce his household laws on another home. You may not operate outside of your jurisdiction. And this is we spent weeks showing you how the Bible says this. We must obey God rather than men. It's all over the Bible. Church and state are distinct spheres of government, and each sphere is designed by God to stay in its lane. A few sermons ago, I explained that civil government may only interfere with Christian worship in the areas that either inadvertently impact the church or when there is abuse in a church. And when the state intervenes, it does have the right to wield the God-given tool for the task, namely the sword. The same is true in the other direction, though. The church, as an institution, may interfere with civil government only when there are abuses of power. And when the church intervenes, it is only authorized to wield the tools God has given it, namely prophetic criticism. I dealt with this last week. The church may advise, persuade, deter, admonish, discourage, even publicly rebuke civil authorities when they dishonor God. But we may not pick up arms against the state as the church. Our weapons are not of this world. And we have examples of this throughout the whole Bible. 
I've tried to give many of these to you guys throughout the course of this sermon series. But remember, uh, David in his sin with Bathsheba and then killing her husband Uriah is approached by a prophet. An officer in the church sphere shows up before David, the civil authority of the day, and he rebukes him publicly and he calls him out. That's what he should have done. There's another story in the Old Testament that's helpful to think about this as well. It was the story of Uzziah. He was the second longest reigning king in the history of Judah. He reigned for 52 years, from the time he was 16 until he died. Uzziah got really arrogant at one point. This is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, if you want to check it out. Uzziah gets proud, and he decides he's going to step outside of the state sphere, and he wants to walk into the temple. And he wants to offer incense on the altar of incense, which only a Levitical priest was permitted to do. And as he began to arrogantly walk in, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. Ahaziah, who was the high priest at the time, got 80 priests, 80 of them together. And they went into that temple and they stood between, they interposed between Uzziah and the altar of incense and said, you may not do this, king. This is wicked. God has drawn a line in the sand and you were outside of your jurisdiction. You may not offer incense on this altar. You are not authorized to do so. And Uzziah starts getting all proud. And when he's getting ready to proclaim judgment against these guys, God, in a miraculous moment, strikes Uzziah with leprosy. Boom, right there. For those of you guys who know about leprosy, it actually says a few verses after that happens, he was then kicked out of the household of God. He was excommunicated from the commonwealth of Israel. Because as you know, an unclean leper was not permitted to be a part of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. It was seen as a sign of judgment from God. In this case, it absolutely was. Put an asterisk on that one to go study that out. There was an authorized king of Israel for years who was an excommunicated member of that church. Check that out. Even into the New Testament, John the Baptist. He calls out Herod as a civil leader. And he calls it out on the basis of adultery. Let me know that ended with John the Baptist's head on a platter at a party. But the church does not have the authority to seize power over civil government any more than the civil government has authority to seize power over our worship. And that is biblical separation of church and state. That's how the Bible defines a separation of church and state. You might be picking up now that so many people today view separation as a complete severance between state and religion. And just for clarity, because we're Christians in America, this would not apply to somebody who's not an American, but it does apply to us. The First Amendment of our Constitution begins with, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Probably familiar language to you, hopefully. This means positively that the government may not mandate religion for its people, and negatively it may not prohibit our worship. But people today have totally reinterpreted what that means. They define separation of church and state as a prohibition on a state acknowledging any religion or morals and values derived from that religion in establishing laws. They demand religion, faith, God, biblical law, even Christian morals may in no way have any effect on the laws of our nation. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is absolutely absurd. I want to explain to you the two major problems with that way of thinking. First and foremost, God demands that all people everywhere obey his commands. Psalm 47, 7 through 8 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Who's the high king? God is. He's the one in all authority. For anyone, ruler or otherwise, to reject Jesus as our ultimate king is nothing less than high treason. But we see passages like this that make it even clearer. Psalm 2, 10 through 11. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do you know how many Christians today say the Old Testament law was obligated for the people of civil Israel? I agree, that's definitely true. But they'll stop there and say that no other king could possibly be held to account by God. This verse does. It demands that, O kings, rulers of the earth, not just Israel, not just Judah, kings of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. All the kings of the earth have been commanded by God to serve him and serve him with fear. Look at 2 Samuel 23, 3 through 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It is a good and awesome blessing when a ruler of the earth fears God in his ruling. This is why Romans 13 refers to the civil authority as the deacon of God. Because God requires all kings, emperors, governors, judges, Supreme Court justices, magistrates, sheriffs, senators, representatives, and presidents to rule according to his standard of justice. First and foremost, God demands that all people everywhere obey his commands. And second, logically, it is not possible for a state to remain neutral regarding religion. You need to know this. It is not possible for a state to remain neutral regarding religion. And here's the truth of it. All governments are theocracies. All governments are theocracies. All governments recognize something as the highest authority. They must appeal to some standard of justice in order to establish laws. And this standard of justice is the highest recognized authority in the land. Namely, it's God to them. And if your highest authority is not the God of the Bible, then it's Allah or Baal or Molech or a singular tyrant. Perhaps it's philosophy or science, or, or better stated, your particular version of science, or public consensus, which never works for more than five minutes, or Satan himself. But every government has a God, just like every person has a God. Atheists say, God doesn't exist. Brothers and sisters, wrong. Atheism doesn't exist. If you think you're an atheist, you're lying to yourself. There is no such thing as a true atheist. 
You go find me a true atheist and I'll go find you a unicorn. And I'll get back here just as fast as you. Of course you have a God. Everyone does. And if you can't find one and name it outside of yourself, that shows me that you are your God. And you worship that God all day, every day. If you are your own highest authority, then you become the ultimate arbiter of what is right and wrong. Something is only true if you declare it to be true. Something is only false when you declare it to be false. And if you don't understand something, then it must just be mythologies and nonsense from the primitive primitive fools who don't think like me. But your so-called atheism is no excuse for your treason against King Jesus. Because God says you know darn well that there's a God and you have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And there is only one hope for you, the same hope that all of us appeal to, the name of Jesus alone. That we repent of our sins. That you may join the numberless masses of arrogant fools like all of us who once worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We were not better than you. We were not smarter that we just figured it out. By God's good and loving grace, we see that he is the king, that his judgment is true, and that we are deserving of his wrath. At the base, at the root of all Christian confession is the fact that we are not king, but Jesus is If you have not repented of your sins today, if you don't believe in Jesus for salvation, you need to do that. Before you leave here today, talk to somebody about the gospel. Ask somebody next to you for the hope that they have, the reason for the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. Don't leave. Don't go eat again. Don't go take a nap. Don't sleep and wake up tomorrow for work. You manage that today. Because only by submission to the one true king do we become part of his kingdom Whether or not you believe that the United States was founded as an American nation, our modern American collective religion today is secularism. And make no mistake about it, secularism is a religion. It absolutely is. It's filled with worshipers and sacraments and idolatry. We're seeing this play out on a giant screen right now. If there's no God to determine how many genders there are, then who says how many there are? American Christians have been so blinded by just how depraved men can really be that we bought the lie of redefining separation of church and state. We swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. We said, well, I guess it makes sense to not allow one religion to set the national standard of justice, won't people apart from God agree that there are only two genders? Won't people who think that there is no God agree that we shouldn't murder unborn children? Won't people who hate God with a burning passion agree that we shouldn't castrate a 10-year-old boy because he says he feels like a girl? I think that Christians in past generations did not realize just how wicked the heart of mankind is. We lost this war the day that we unhitched our laws from God's word. We need judges today who will say, why should we not murder? Because God says you shall not murder. That's why. Because God said it. 
That every man, woman, and child is an image bearer of God. And any attack on that image bearer is an attack on the image of God himself. And it's worthy of judgment. That's why babies are worthy of life. That's why murder shouldn't happen. That's why adultery shouldn't happen. That's why theft shouldn't happen. Because God put it in his word and he gave us a perfect and holy law. That's why. Not just because it seems like it makes a good sense for a nation to apply those laws. Because God said so. That's why. And we need judges who are bold to say, that's my standard, what God says. And until our country gets on its knees and repents of this lawlessness, there will be no hope for justice in this country. No hope. What what hope could we possibly have for justice when people continue to rush forward into folly, saying that there is no God? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is much that could be said about applying the general equity of Old Testament laws to our modern systems. We are not to simply take all the laws of the Old Testament and just place them within our modern day without any contextualization. Not saying that at all. The application of such laws will require much wisdom. But one thing must be made super clear. We must acknowledge God alone as our infallible, all-holy ruler, and there is no other sufficient starting point. The only hope for our country is the same as the only hope for every sinner in this room and every sinner in this world. Repentance and faith in King Jesus. We submit to him as subjects of his kingdom. That's our hope. We have no other play. there's There's no other item on the docket in Christian politics. There's no plan B. Well, they don't believe in God, so there has to be another way to get justice. No! We don't sacrifice that. That's like going into a debate with an atheist and they say, I won't believe your word and say, well, I'll put my sword down and you can keep yours. We do not do that as Christians. God will be vindicated. He is an avenger. And on the final day, he will not go, oh, you didn't believe in me? Well, I'll have to come up with a new way to judge you. It doesn't work. And as Christians, we are not doing any loving favors to the world around us when we abdicate the responsibility to call people to repentance according to the word of God and his law. We are not being helpful for our nation when we say it's okay for a leader to not love and honor and submit to God. That's not okay. We only have one hope. Next week, I hope, Lord willing, to wrap up this sermon series. That'll be our seventh week in this series, and there's probably some people like sevens in the Bible, so maybe that's a good way to stop. We're going to cover kings, voting, self-government, and where we should go from here. Please pray with me now as we close. Father, this morning, there is so, so, so much that he talked about, all the minutiae of the laws and how we're to apply those things today. So many things take lots of prudence, lots of patience and generosity as we figure out these things together. But Father, there are some things that are just unshakably clear. Help us to start at that beginning point. Help us to cry out for, to pray for men and women who love and honor you to sit in the seat of judges in our land. For those who do not honor and love you, I pray that they would repent of their sins before you and turn in faith to their only true ruler, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be consistent in this as Christians, that we wouldn't be okay with trying to establish cultures that seek to find justice apart from you because it can't be done. Father, help us to see the folly in it 
just the, the utter foolishness that we've fallen into over years thinking that we can make this happen. Lord, keep us from error in this thinking. Help us to love your word so much that we want it to apply to every minute of every day of not only our lives, but to the lives of all the people whom you will judge with justice and with equity. Lord, give us the, the, the conviction to carry this message into the public sphere. Help us to love you and your word and people so much that we want really what's best for them, not just what they might like to hear. Lord, help us to be bold evangelists. Help us to be bold in our prophetic criticisms of our nation today. Help us, help us to be gracious too, Lord. Help us to not hold an, an unrealistic standard that no man can align to in looking for a president or a, or a governor or even a judge. Father, help us to think all things through the light of your gospel of grace. But help Christians come back to the truth of your word and to not sacrifice one bit of it on the altar of progressivism in our world. We love you, Lord, and we need help applying these things with wisdom. Help us and come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.